Have you noticed, especially this time or in this season uh, of life, how many things are unstable and uncertain in the world? I mean, just thinking through the geopolitical scene and what's going on with the war in Eastern Europe. And every week it seems like we get news of some update and some more news that just makes this world seem less and less stable. Now, perhaps you're not watching world news, but you're keeping your eye more on the, what's going on in our nation, whether it's political things, legislative things, or just the economy, inflation, investments. Do you perhaps have any worry about just the job industry and wondering if your job will be stable uh, in the near future. Do you think, do you have anything that you see unstable and uncertain in your life? Perhaps some news that you received recently or changes in your circumstances that leave you unclear, uncertain what will happen? Or perhaps plans and hopes that you had, and they're not coming to fruition the way you had expected them to. And you just wonder, is this what God has for you? Are things going to be the kind of stable and secure experiences that you had hoped for? Oh, friends, think how easily we fret when certain changes come our way and instability, lack of security, the fear of that just knocks on the doors of our hearts. We certainly are people who can easily feel insecure. It does not take much to get us to, to flip over from feeling calm and stable to something going off and just being concerned. We need a God who reminds us that when we are in him, we are secure. And this is the message that we get this morning from Romans chapter 8. We'll be reading from verse 31 to verse 39. Romans chapter 8, 31 to 39. As we look at the theme of secure in God. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we all are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. What a great word for us to hear today. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of this word and our hearing of it. Let's pray. Gracious God, 
What an amazing and powerful reminder you give us in your word of the security that you bestow upon all those on whom you have set your eyes to be in a relationship with. Father, I pray that you would fill me with your power of your spirit to proclaim this word faithfully and clearly, and we ask for your spirit to be at work in all of us as we hear this word. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ and through the presence of your spirit among us. Amen. I think three words summarize the, the main point of the passage we have just read. And those three words are secure in God. Secure in God. The major section that started in chapter 5 now comes to a close. You can see the tone of this conclusion in the first few words of this text when Paul asks in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? What are these things referring to? It's not merely the preceding verses, but all that has been going on in this book, not only from chapter 1, but really especially from chapter 5 as Paul has been focusing on describing the benefits of being justified by faith. In this text, Paul is bringing his argument to a climactic moment in the book. And he wants us to explore and consider the implications of all that Paul has been arguing for, leading us to understand and hear and and embrace uh, the, the gospel that justifies us by faith. The news that we are made right with God, not because of our own right doing, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And Paul's strategy to get us to think about the implications of, of all these things that he has been leading us to understand and hear is to give us a number of questions. At the beginning of the book of Romans, he asked a lot of questions. If you remember chapter 1 and particularly chapter 2 leading to chapter 3 that ushered us into this amazing news of of what it means to be made right with God. And here at the end of chapter 8, he gives us a lot of questions again because he's trying to get us to think about the implications of of all these benefits that he has been speaking to us about. The benefits of the gospel. The the questions that Paul asks us to consider start with a premise. So he begins in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? And then there is a premise. A way of, of summarizing what he has said so far. If God is for us. When Paul says, if God is for us, this is not a statement of uncertainty. He's not saying, if God is for us, and I hope he is, if, if, we, if we just run this argument, if he is for us, that's, that's, not, what, that's not the force of this if statement. Uh, Sometimes we use if statements not to cast a doubt or uncertainty, but to state a state of fact, a a certainty, like since God is for us. And that's the, the power of this phrase here. Since God is for us. The other thing we want to say about this phrase is that the phrase, if God is for us, should not mean should not be uh, understood to mean that God is for all people universally. In Romans 1, we have been told that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness of men. 
Does now chapter 8 contradict what we heard in chapter 1? No, not at all. But between chapter 1 that presented us with the wrath of God against all unrighteousness, how do we get from chapter 1 to chapter 8 where we read that if God is for us, well, in between these chapters, we have been introduced to the gospel. <laughs> what God has done so that rebels, sinners, who have acted against the Lord, who have turned their backs on Him, are now reconciled with God. And now Paul is speaking about the, if God is for us, he's speaking to those who have been reconciled with God. Well, friends, I wonder if you can say this morning, if God is for me. It is for those who rely on Jesus Christ for salvation, for those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ to be made right with God. Only they can say, God is for us. And this is a wonderful change that has taken place throughout this letter. This is a wonderful change that the gospel brings in that any sinner who has turned their back towards the creator of the universe, they hear the good news about Jesus Christ and they repent and trust in Christ. They can claim this promise if God is for us. Do you have the assurance that God is for you? Some people don't have this assurance. And today would be a wonderful day to turn to the Lord, respond to Him by faith. And the Spirit, Holy Spirit of God who comes to dwell inside of us would give our hearts that assurance since God is for you. Some people have the assurance in a false way. They have assurance without really having the grounds for that assurance. Uh, we, we know in the, in the scriptures that some people will come before God's throne of judgment and, and say, haven't we done this in your name? And haven't we done this in your name? And, and the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. There's some people who have assurance but have it falsely. So it's very important for us to, to, to weigh these matters. The big question is, is God for you? As good as this news is, this is actually only the premise. This is just a starting point because Paul's emphasis in this passage is not to declare that God is for us. He has done so already in the first eight chapters of this book. Now the, his aim is to say, if God is for us, since God is for us, so what? What now? What's the significance of this news? And he will give us this message that those who belong to God, those for whom God is for us, experience an unshakable security. And this is the message that this passage gives us. Since God is for us, believers experience an unshakable security. And we see the security in three areas of life. And the first one is Secure in our future inheritance. Secure in our future inheritance. We see this in verses 31 to 32. Look at how verse 31 closes. What then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? The meaning here is not who dare be against us. There is no macho man attitude here thinking oh I got this I don't need to worry about this sort of defying the the hard realities of life uh, the the experiences of lament of suffering of distress as a matter of fact I'm not sure if you noticed how many two of two of the long lists of suffering distress that believers are reminded that we are facing in this world Oh, there, this is no macho man attitude, who dare be against us. Instead, the meaning of the question Paul is asking is something like, 
who will prevail against us in the end if God is for us? That's a, that's a tone of this question. Who will prevail against us in the end if God is for us? And Paul is asking a second question in verse 32, which sheds more clarity on the first question. On the, on the security that God's people will have on that final day. Look at the question in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now the first part of this question sets the premise. The first part of this question is a fleshing out of the if God is for us in the previous verse. Look at the first half. What does it mean that if God is for us? Well, that is fleshed out in the first half of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Well, friends, this is what it means that God is for us. We know that he is for us because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, for us all, for all who would repent and trust in Christ for salvation. The language of not sparing his own son that Paul uses to describe God the Father in this passage echoes the language of Genesis 22 when God called Abraham to bring his own son, the, the only one that came through the promise, the only one that was birthed through the promise given to Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham, when he heard that call of God, the Father, we are told that Abraham trusted God and began acting, began the journey to Mount Moriah, went up the mountain. Isaac asked Abraham, where is the sacrifice? And, and all Abraham could do is to say, the Lord will provide. <laughs> but he was, he was getting ready to act on what God told him to do. And in the last part of this scene of, of Abraham sacrificing his son, God intervened and stopped him and told him, I, I see that you were willing not to spare your only son. And all of that is an anticipation of what God the Father would do with his own son. When God would send his son, his only one, to come and walk up another mountain. But that time, no one else would intervene. This is how much God is for us. This is what it means for God to be for sinners, for all sinners who would repent and trust in Christ. That nothing was off limits for God to give. Oh, friends, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus this Christmas season, consider that God would not withhold anything, not even his son, so that you and I would be reconciled with him. How do we know that God is for us? Because nothing was off limits for God to sacrifice in order to bring sinners back to himself. But as good as that good news is, Paul's focus was not to stop there. We, you and I could camp out here and just stand in this moment since God is for us. But Paul's aim here is to actually move us forward. Since that is the case, now what? 
Paul's point is that God will not withhold from us the good that he has planned for us. And this is what he states in the remaining of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is, this is a point Paul is driving home. Paul wants to reassure us believers that God will not withhold from us all things. What does that mean? I'm sure you can think of in your life if you just took a few moments and could easily come up with a bullet list of things that you are still waiting for God to give you, for God to work for you, for God to actually bring to fruition in your life. So what does it mean here when Paul says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice that the things that Paul is speaking of are things promised to us with him, namely with Christ. What are these things? Paul doesn't define them. Some of us would wish for Paul to be a little more specific at this moment. And if he's not specific, you're looking at me to be specific with you, right? What are these all things that Paul promised? Well, I think Paul is speaking here of the culmination of all things when Christ will be revealed. There is this future moment. There is this future orientation to this promise. How will he not give us with him when Christ will be revealed, when all things will be consumed and consummated? I think he's talking here about the future inheritance. Nothing will be missing from it. It will be a comprehensive and full inheritance that God promised to give us graciously with Christ. Now think about it for a moment. Isn't this one of the ways Satan tempts you and I to make you, see, make you and I think that God is withholding good from us? I mean, this was his trick in the garden. To Adam and Eve, God is withholding you to know all that he knows. To make you doubt that he, God, has your best interest for you. To make you question and whether or not God is somehow shortchanging you. That God is withholding good things from you. So many of the temptations that we face in our world gain their power through this thought. Is God keeping some good things from me and I got to go and find it out on my own? Paul's argument is simple. He who has not withheld his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also give us with him graciously all things? In other words, Paul says, look at the cross. Look at everything that God has done from giving his son to be incarnate, to experience humiliation, to experience the limits of, a, of an infant, to experience the limits of a child, to experience the limits of just being human, to experience hunger and danger and he experienced it to the full. If he did all that and he did not withhold his own son, do you want to believe the lie that somehow God is withholding good things from you? Friends, are there ways in which your heart doubts God's goodness and faithfulness to withhold good things from you for all eternity? Paul says, because God is for us, we are secure in our future inheritance. It will be given for us to the full.
But there's a second area of security that Paul wants us to be secure in God for. And that is secure before his throne of judgment. Secure before his throne of judgment. Look at verses 33 and 34. Now in this book, in the book of Romans, justification is a big theme. Some have even said it is the biggest theme of the book. Well, it is a big theme for sure. Not only was it introduced in chapters 1, 2, and 3, it was fleshed out in chapter 4, and then in the second major section of Romans that started with chapter 5, we were introduced to the benefits of justification. And now at the end of this section, Paul comes back to it to remind us that on that final day, followers of Christ can be secure before God's throne of judgment. We see this in the way Paul asks in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This is not talking about our current life experiences as followers of God. In our current experiences, even Christians uh, live inconsistently so often and so many times that we can bring charges against one another. I mean, just think about for a second. Do you have someone you are disappointed with who is a Christian? Perhaps even someone in this own congregation, in your family, who bears the name of Christian, and you have a charge against that person. You could bring a charge against that person. You could bring a charge against me. I don't always follow the Lord in the same way and consistency as Scripture calls me to do so. We need one another to encourage one another. This is not talking about the charge that is being brought against believers in the here and now. This is talking about the charge or the charges that any of us would naturally be liable to receive before God's throne of judgment. And Paul asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Yes, there, there will be reasons for charges to be brought against us if we are facing that throne of judgment on our own righteousness. Because none of us are living it perfectly righteous. But Paul is saying here what he's been summarizing. Uh, he's summarizing here and he's saying in a way, as a way of conclusion what he be, he's been laying out for us so far in this book. That for those who are in Christ, for them and them only, when the time comes for any of the charges to be brought against God's elect, notice what will God do? God justifies. God will declare righteous. And the question is, how can he do so when none of us have acted righteously in a consistent way? Why can God be the one who justifies sinners? And the reason is because of what we are told in the question of verse 34. Who is to condemn Interestingly, Paul is not giving an answer to that question. Paul is not telling us who is to condemn. He, is going, he goes on to say why God is justifying. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The reason why on that final day before the throne of God's judgment... God will no longer condemn those who are in Christ. It's because Jesus died, was raised, ascended to the Father, sits at his right hand right now, and he is interceding for us right now. And he will be interceding for us on that final day. Earlier in, in the previous text, we were told that the Holy Spirit who is inside of us intercedes for us. And now we are told that Jesus Christ is interceding for us. Oh friend, 
He is interceding for you if you have placed your trust in Christ. So why is our pardon secure on that final day? Why is God not going to condemn us on that day? Because of Christ who died, was raised, and now intercedeth before the Father. This is why those who are true Christians have the assurance of salvation. The Jesus whom they have leaned upon is a Jesus who gave his life to pay for the penalty of their sins. It's Jesus who conquered the grave and now intercedeth before the Father. Oh, friends, this is why we do not pray and we dare not pray to Mary or to other saints to intercede for us before the Father. This is why the Roman Catholic Church teaches a false gospel. When Jesus is interceding at the right hand of the Father, what, what courage and boldness do we have to say, oh Jesus, you know, you could use some help by some other saints around you to bring a good word before the Father. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not give us all things? And the confidence we have for that day before him is that the one who died and rose again is interceding for us. God's elect will stand secure before God's judgment throne, not on our merit, not on the merit of other saints, not even on the merit of Mary but on the merit of Christ alone. He is at the right hand of the Father who intercedeth for us. For us. Since God is for us, believers experience an unshakable security. We have this security not only for our promised inheritance, we have this security before His throne of judgment. But there's a third area. We have this security. We are secure in God's love for us. We're secure in God's love for us. We see this in verses 35 to 39. And may I say, this is what gets Paul most excited about because he, he spends most of his time here in this last point. Notice the final question Paul asks in verse 35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now the love of Christ that Paul is referring to here is not our love for Christ, but Christ's love for us. When Christ loved us, there was nothing that got in the way of that love reaching us. Think of the tribulation. Think of the distress. Think of the persecution. Think of the nakedness that Jesus endured while being crucified. Think of the famine. Jesus endured being tested in the wilderness and he would not eat even though he could turn the stones into bread because he was not going to feed on bread that nourishes the body. He was going to rather feed on the word of God that promised, that planned our salvation. Oh, friends, Consider the other list that Paul brings up in verses 38 and 39 when Paul expands a list of potential obstacles that one might consider as intervening between us and God's love. Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
this list of scenarios or circumstances or agents is meant to show the extreme boundaries of our existence. Just consider the first one, death. Death separates many people. Death becomes an obstacle to so many things and plans. Just consider how many dreams death has ruined by the untimely death of a loved one. Death is a potent separator. But not for the love of God. When it comes to God's love for us, death was not able to be a separator between the love of God and us. Quite the opposite. It was through death that God loved us. Through the death of his own son. Consider life. Life can become an obstacle to love. People don't love one another well because we love our own lives more than others. Love is oftentimes uh, thwarted in our experience because we love our own lives. But consider the reality that if God loved the life of his own son above all things, God's own salvation would have not reached us. But God did not love even the life of his son more than us so that God gave his own son for us. Oh, friends, life itself was not an obstacle for God to love us. And just consider how often life is an obstacle for us to love one another. Paul continues this list of, of extremes, thinking about angels and rulers as potential obstacles, spiritual beings or authority figures. They too could become an obstacle but not for God's love of us. Herod was not an obstacle, even though he tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Or think of things that are present going on in our lives, or future things. None of them can stand as an obstacle to God's love for us. Some might consider certain places to be too far. Have you heard people say, I've gone too far. I've done too much. And Paul says, nor heights, nor depths. No place is too far for the love of God not to be able to penetrate. Or think of actions or things in this creation that might be considered by some of us to be too much for God's love to hold on to us. Friends, this portfolio of potential causes that could stand between God and his love and us is meant to communicate this message that no matter how big the obstacles could be, none of these obstacles could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is a way of saying God's love for us is unstoppable. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be left halfway done. Started, but then this thing came up on the picture and just, sorry, we cannot complete the project. Oh, friends, nothing will be able to prevail against God's love for us in Christ. Now, this love is not a mushy feeling. This love is not an act of accepting you and leaving you as you are. This unstoppable love of God is His love in Christ. If God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, do you think that there is an obstacle that now could be put between God's love and the object of his love? 
Paul's answer is nothing. God's love is not a distant love. Those who are in Christ, God's love is, is not something that we just fall into or fall out of. Friends, we are secure in God's love for us. It's one thing to say you are loved beyond measure. This verse, this text is saying something slightly different. Saying if you are in Christ, you are loved with an eternally secure and effectual love. Nothing will corrupt it. Nothing will thwart it. Nothing will stop it. Because his love for us is rooted in Christ. Now why is Paul describing this this love of Christ and of God for us in such amazing language, in such lavish terms. It is very lavish. But why is he describing it so? Because actually in this passage, Paul is reminding us believers that at the present time, we do go through suffering. We do go through trials. We do go through distress. Some do go through famine. Some do go through lack of resources. And Paul is actually even quoting a passage from Scripture, from Psalm 44. Look at, look at verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. A verse Paul takes verbatim from Psalm 44, which is a psalm that describes the suffering of the righteous people. They suffer not because of their sin. Their suffering is caused simply because they are followers of Christ who trust in God. There are times when we suffer and we don't understand why. It's not a corrective or disciplinary suffering. We may question in those moments, Lord, what is your plan? And we may not understand what it is. And in such moments, it's very easy for us to question God's love for us, to doubt if he really has still the best interest in mind for us. We doubt or may question if God is really there for us. And for such experiences, we need to be reminded of the incredible love that God has for us in Christ. That despite our current circumstances, we are secure in the love of God for us in Christ. But Paul is not only telling us you are secure in that love despite your circumstances. Paul is actually telling us something even more Surprising, startling, and that is that we are not only secure in God's love, but we are conquerors in all of these things through God's love. Look at how he starts in verse 35. He asks the question, the final question he asks in this text, and then he answers it with a no in verse 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And after a list of dangers and sufferings that Paul gives us, after the quotation from Psalm 44, Paul answers this question and he says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not only secure in God's love for us, we are conquerors over all these things through God's love for us. Now, the word Paul uses for more than conquerors is a, like, a, like a super conqueror. What does that mean? Well, it's a word that suggests that our victory is not a barely made victory last-minute kind of thing, uncertain until the very end. 
Well, let me give you an example of the, the bare victory and the more than victory scenario. Uh, these days I'm watching soccer World Cup. I know those of you who don't watch World Cup, bear with me. You're missing out. When two teams play one another, and they're really, really good teams, uh, they, you, you, you're unsure who's going to win. Both have chances. Both are really strong. Recently, uh, two such teams played against each other. It was Netherlands versus Argentina. 90 minutes of fighting. 90 minutes of, of trying to score. None of them score. They go in extension time. And after halfway through the extension time, Netherlands scores. I mean, they're ecstatic. And they're joyful. And you're thinking, wow, Netherlands has it. What can Argentina do? And two minutes before the last, before the, the whistle blows, Argentina scores. And now you're like, okay, the, the 90 minutes is over, the extension is over, and they're still one-to-one. -one. And they go on penalties. And they go five penalties each. And he was unsure who's going to win until the very last penalty. And yes, Argentina won. Sorry, Carl. The Dutch just could not do it this time. It was, they, were, they were victorious. They were ecstatic. But until the very last penalty, you were not sure who's going to be win. That's one scenario. Bear, winning but barely winning it, sort of last minute, versus another game. When Portugal played with Switzerland, and they started scoring in minute 13, that is Portugal. And they started scoring 13, and scoring again, and scoring again, and scoring again, and scoring again, it ended up being 6-1 to one at the end against Switzerland. Now, that was not barely winning it. That was like more than conquerors. That's the abundant victory. Like, it's so clear. There's no question here who's going to finish this game as victorious. And when Paul uses this language and he says, after the list of distress, tribulations, suffering. And after he quotes Psalm 44, which says, this has been determined for you that we should go through suffering. After he quotes scripture, he then says, no. Through all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not barely making it, not unsure if it will turn out well at the end. No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's the love of God in Christ Jesus that guarantees our security. We are secure, not in our love for him. We are secure in God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Well, friends, this is what Paul wants to encourage us with in this passage. He wants you and I to know that no matter how long the distress is, how deep it is, how hard it is, we're not going to just barely make it through. He wants us to have our minds set that through all of these we will conquer, and we will be more than conquerors. And the credit is due not to us, not to our feelings in the moment, not to our love in the moment. The credit is due to God's love for us. Oh, friends, just think with me for a moment. If God's love for us triumphed, through suffering in Jesus Christ.
if God's love for us triumphed through the cross and through the grave, that God did not just barely slide his victory through at the very end. No, he conquered powerfully. If God did that in Jesus for us, do you think he will let you hanging? in all that you're going through? Child of God, you are secure in God. In God's love for us. And that security is so strong that he wants you and I to to leave from this place with this confidence, we are more than conquerors through all this distress. Remember how this text started. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who? Who can be against us? Secure in our promised inheritance, Secure before his throne of judgment. Secure in his love for us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, our words are too weak to be able to express our gratitude and our ability to comprehend fully how much you have shown to be for us in your son Jesus. And all we can do in this moment is to ask of you, give us eyes to see. Give us the ability to hear and understand and embrace your security for us in Christ such that nothing that we experience in this world will thwart us, will lure us away from you. Father, help us to have our eyes gazed on Christ and on your love for us in him so that we will be more than conquerors in all these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.